Welcome to the Bible in a Year podcast. I am your host, Jay Smith. We are here with the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We are walking through the Gospels in 2022. We'd love for you to do that with us. You can do that at read-scripture.com. So glad that you're here listening to this. My name is Jay, as I mentioned. With me today, Jimmy Doyle and Travis Bruno. And then special guest, Shelly Johnson, is here. Chapter 9. This is this is where it is. You, I set you up last time with chapter 8 that you are going to get a revelation about the transfiguration in chapter 9. And here it is. So you tuned in. Here it is. So we start out right out of the gate, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And it's actually one of those things where the translators are like, let's just put a few verses just a little bit into the next one just to keep people on their toes. Um and he does say something that's not like it's some sort of throwaway statement, even though it's kind of easy to maybe read it that way. But then Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. There is another passage and, and somebody may already have this reference where um, I think it may be in John's gospel. But when Jesus talks about that and, and people have assumed that maybe somebody never dies until Jesus comes back. But this one, one of the things I had read uh, in one of the commentaries is the fact that uh, this is about the kingdom of God coming in power. And so that has a little bit more of a, a finite timeline versus this indefinite, you know, or infinite timeline of somebody's survival. So uh, moving on to verse two, the transfiguration after Jesus, after six days, uh, after six days. So that's a number, but it's six not seven, not 12. It is half of 12. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three, three of them, and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept his word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as, just as it was written about him. Okay, the transfiguration. Important part as we transition to the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Obviously, a lot of things going on in this. Elijah, Moses, Jesus, the whitest clothes that the world hath ever seen. You know, no launder could ever whiten them, which I thought was just such a funny statement from Mark. Uh, so I do want to give some space and, and I don't want to move too fast over this. And so, Shelly, why don't you start us off with some reflections in your own time of reading the Transfiguration? It comes out of the time I've been spending doing some research or some other studies I'm part of. And all of a sudden, I just saw all these connections to things that happened in the Old Testament. And 
it just adds these layers of meaning and intentionality and consistency maybe is really the basic thing. Um, starting with the fact that Jesus was glowing brilliantly white. I mean, that just took me right back to Moses on Mount Sinai as he uh, met with, with God to get the Ten Commandments plus all these other conversations about building the tabernacle. And when he came down, he glowed so brightly it scared everybody and he had to wear a veil. Um, Daniel had a vision um, of of God sitting on his throne and he just glowed so brightly. And so there's, there's a glory thing happening here, for lack of a better word, that um, to me is maybe Mark and speaking to his audience trying to indicate like, Something supernatural is happening here. God is happening here, you know. Um, another connection that's much more obvious to the Old Testament is the fact that Elijah and Moses show up. And these are two of the biggest pillars of, of the Jewish faith. And they end up representing, from what I've read, Elijah was a prophet. And so he represents prophets. Moses brought the law down off that mountain from God. And so he represents the law. And so you, you have this package of the old covenant meeting with Messiah. I don't know. I just saw this beautiful coming together of old and new, um, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old. It's not a separate thing. Um, and then, so I'm moving quickly through this now and come back, I guess. Um, the whole tent building thing was probably my favorite because I've been doing a study of the tabernacle and the word there for shelter is literally tabernacle. And so some would say that this is just Peter being really spontaneous, which I'm sure it is, but it comes from maybe a background of, Oh my gosh, when glory shows up, we build a tabernacle. And um, I thought that was incredible and it got me really excited. And then finally the cloud. Um, kind of like the glory, the cloud has often represented God's presence in the Old Testament from the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai to God leading the Israelites to the wilderness by a cloud through the cloud that filled the temple, the Holy of Holies, once they um, got that built. So all these connections uh, just gets me all excited to see how it's all one story. God's story is the same from beginning to end, and here we are, right in the middle of it. I think that there is this, uh, number one, like the way you weave in the Old Testament imagery, like I hope people don't skip over that or miss that. Like that's so spot on. And and Jimmy, you can maybe correct this, but uh, so the word tap for tabernacle, tent, shelter, tabernacle, uh, Skene, yeah, in Greek, is that yeah, close? Tent. Yeah, yeah, in the Greek. And one of the things, and, and I haven't done this; I didn't follow it through. I was in the process of trying to do that. Is is if you read John chapter one, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then it goes to this place where Jesus pitched his tent. Uh, so Jesus tabernacled with his people. Uh, the word tabernacle with his people. So I don't know if that's the same word. My assumption is that's the same word in John chapter one. Same word. Yeah. yeah, in verb. yeah. So yeah. yeah, a verb form of a noun reality, right? Tabernacled, which is yeah. such a cool. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I just think it's, it's really cool. And then it, one of the things that I've always resonated with in this as well is how 
Elijah and Moses were these giants, like giants. And uh, the fact that in the midst of that, because people have been questioning, right? Just in chapter eight, as we just read, like, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're Elijah. Well, Elijah's sitting there or standing there next to Jesus, right? So there's this differentiation that's drawn. And then in addition to that is, is what Elijah and Moses don't go, don't get from the cloud is an affirmation of their belovedness as the son of God. Uh, I don't know. I just think like it's this, it's another line of, of differentiation between, and I go, I always lean back into the book of Hebrews, you know, where the author of the book of Hebrews is constantly making these comparisons of Jesus to angels and Jesus to Moses and how Jesus is this, is he transcends, he's greater than these, these old Testament imageries. And I think that that's what I at least connect with in the transfiguration story as we read it together. I think, um, again, it's the pivot point. It's the middle part of the gospel. At the very beginning of the gospel, he says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now right in the middle, you have this, this declaration from this voice. The voice happened at the baptism. Now it's happening again. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a lawgiver. Like he is the Son of God. Like there's this, who, who do people say that I am? Well, some say the prophet, some say John the Baptist. And Jesus is very clearly by God himself, the voice from the cloud being elevated above all of that. And, you know, again, Mark, Mark is this subtle, uh, <clears throat> whereas in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew likes to point out, hey, hey, everybody, I'm quoting scripture right here, and Jesus is fulfilling it. Here's the Old Testament passage. Mark like pulls out these things from the Old Testament without telling any of his readers or hearers that he's doing it. He's assuming that they get it. Uh, and then the analogy that I use is like when my son watches Marvel movies, because he knows all the background stuff, and they don't have to point out anything. And a character can walk into a room, and, and, and Jake, my son, will get this smile on his face. I'm like, Jake, who is this? And he knows all this backstory. I think Mark is thinking that his audience knows all this backstory. So like in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, there's a vision, right? And as I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was as white as snow, and his hair was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. This is a vision that he has of God himself. And so for Jesus to be in these clothes that are gleaming white, it's also like the book of Revelation, there's a picture here of something that's happening. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. And in Jewish tradition, uh, there is an expectation that Elijah is going to come. So like at Passover, there's a, a place set for Elijah he's coming at the end of time. Because Elijah in the Old Testament never dies. He's caught up in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire um, to heaven. And there's a question about whether Moses dies or not in Jewish tradition uh, because Moses has no burial place, basically. Um, and so in later, uh, in a thing called uh, basically the interpretation of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy Rabbah, it, God tells Moses, uh, in the time to come when I send Elijah the prophet unto them, unto Israel, the two of you shall come together. So at the time that I, that, that I send Elijah, there's going to be you and Elijah. And that's happening right here with Jesus. And I think that Mark would think that his audience would understand some of those traditions that were, that's a later tradition, but it's probably in development during Jesus' day. So this is, this is an, what we would call an epiphany moment. But God is revealing himself through Jesus at this moment. And his audience, I think, would love this, like the readers and the hearers of Mark. It's just like that. Everybody's clapping. It's not the end of the story, but it's like, ah, yeah, finally, it's really clear to everybody who he is. Now, a chapter later, his disciples are not going to get it again. It's it's crazy how easily they forget all of this. But what a great, what a great image uh, this moment is in the Gospel of Mark. 
Trav, I don't want to move past the transfiguration without giving some of your kind of insight or any kind of questions that arose as you read that. Uh, anything in addition to what has been said? I mean, I just have gratitude for all of you and, and just the way that you read it and the things that you pull out of it and the way that you study it. And so that's all that I really want to say is, man, uh, I'm so thankful for Shelly and you're the reason why I even joined in today. So, um, that kind of hurts, but I mean, I guess I should celebrate that for Shelly, but man, that cuts deep. <laughs> I'm glad that God gives us each a different mind and a different experience and like makes everything come out of that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, sorry, I wasn't meaning to cutting, cut you off, but you offended me. And so, uh, <laughs> one of the things I do want to affirm what Shelly walked through as part of this transfiguration conversation is kind of the similar thing with Mark is I think, I think for most of us, um, if we would have heard that, like, and probably most of us did actually listen to this or read this and didn't catch all of the Old Testament imagery that Mark was sliding in, as Mark, as Jimmy kind of mentioned. Um, but I do think it's the challenge to anybody who is engaging with or reading scripture to truly try to see it as a unified story. Mark, all of the um, like, and I think about this in the context of, of one of the passages that's always resonated with anybody that has a heart for the church, right? Acts chapter two, verse 42 through 47, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings and, and the scriptures, right? Like when they were referring back to the scriptures is there was such an, an a deep familiarity with the, what we call the old Testament in the early church. And so when they're putting these images together for you is it's really easy a oh, cloud. Okay, cool. It's up there, but, but it would have made such sense. And, and, the, and I challenge you not to say like, you're missing it. And if you're not thinking it, but just to remember that this is God's unified story. Uh, this is not the new Testament standing upon its own, but it is the new Testament is a revelation of the God of the old Testament, right? Like in the flesh, the word has become flesh. And so, um, it's not the natural way and, and it's not the natural way that we read the New Testament is to keep that Old Testament imagery in our mind. But but if I could just give you kind of one affirmation for what I'm just like in awe of, of Shelley's kind of development in that is like because she's engaged in these Old Testament studies and stories, she's seeing the story of Jesus in a, in a new way, which I think is really an encouraging thing. So I just as you read, if you're listening to this and you're reading along with us, like if something maybe pops into your mind that thinks, man, that makes sense to some story I remember, because we just finished the Old Testament last year. If you read with us, like if there is that reference, don't just toss it aside. Uh, do a little bit of research and find how that reference makes sense to you, because the Old Testament is all over the New Testament. So is that fair to say? Yeah, we should do a podcast at some point on that, like. We're not really, and maybe when we get into Matthew, we can do that more because I, I mean, I have a list of scriptures here that I think that, I mean, we, so here's one Think about this. You're reading this in Mark or you're hearing this in Mark. There's a cloud, there's a hill, there's a mountain. This thing is that Moses is in the picture. This is from Exodus chapter 19, verse nine. Yahweh says to Moses, it's a quote, quote from the, from the Bible. Uh, the Lord Yahweh says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And the idea that God speaks out of the dense cloud, them knowing that scripture, and then this moment with Jesus, 
I don't think the audience would have missed that. The audience that may have been a partially Jewish, partially Gentile, who was familiar with the Jewish scriptures, God is a God who speaks out of the cloud. Uh, he speaks out of the cloud to Moses, like Shelley was saying, and he's speaking out of the cloud to the disciples. Like uh, the fancy word for this that scholars use is intertextuality. The New Testament is tied, it's intertextually weaved into the Old Testament and vice versa. And it's just an incredible thing to see that in terms of fulfillment uh, that Jesus has been waited on and now he's there and it's happening. This thing that they've been waiting on this whole time is happening in front of them. Fantastic. The next one is we have a, a moment where where the disciples are trying to heal uh, or cast out a demon. So let's read that. Verse 14. When they came to the disciples, this is, remember, there were three in Jesus that went up. So when they came in, in, so just in your mind as you're playing that story, they come down from the mountain after the transfiguration and they encounter the other nine disciples. So when they came down, came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them with scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with him about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and it foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him and immediately threw the boy into convulsions, he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to them, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into a terrible convulsion. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house and with the disciples, asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Wow. That one has a bunch of stuff that I love. Uh, for me, is. I go back to the father's response a lot in my own journey. It's like, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Like from a, from a very personal level, I think there are ways that I, I want to experience some of this miraculous power of Jesus. And I catch in myself this, uh, ability to just struggle to trust that God is still doing these things. And so often I'll pray in my own spirit, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Um, in addition to that, I do think that there are, I don't know it, the way it starts to me. Well, I won't, I won't. Let me, let me, let me see if somebody else catches this. Travis, when you read this, what questions pop up to you? Well, the, the first thing I was just going to say is that at, at the beginning, when they come down, it reminds me of another mountain that somebody came down from and some chaos was kind of happening. Um, and so as I'm just reading through that and thinking about that, like, so I guess questions are like, what, parallels um in that like have meaning uh is there a connection there like you know jimmy the way that you said like some of the things that mark says he doesn't like directly refer to the source or quote but because there's this understanding that his audience would know that he would know 
they would get the connection. And so, you know, what connections um, are from that. And then, uh, well, I guess I, I may just pause there because the rest is for the end of that section. But what what important parallels are there with when Moses comes down and his people are have made a golden calf that they're worshiping? Like, what 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 is there with that? I don't know, man. That's a good connection, though. Like I, the thing is, the thing that stands out to me is Moses hears the sound that, that sounds like. Uh, it sounds, you know, Joshua says to him, it sounds like a battle's taking place. And Moses says, no, that's the sound of a party. But when Jesus gets back, there's this discussion, this kind of argument taking place, which would have been kind of like the chaos of a discussion and all the stuff going on. I think the idea that there's this mount, you know, literally a mountaintop experience and Jesus comes down and is confronted with something that's not of faith. The, the, the word uh, <clears throat> unfaithful happens here twice. The Greek word apistis, lack of faith. And he says, you unbelieving generation, which is the, the adjective there is uh, apistos. And then the, the father, when he says to Jesus, Lord, help me, help my unbelief, he uses the same word, apistos. And so there's this idea that Jesus comes down from this moment that's really clear into this moment where he's being confronted. I just think, again, it's tiring for Jesus. Like, ah, oh, nobody gets it. Un- everybody's unbelieving. And I think that frustration level, you see him responding to people with more frustration as he gets closer to the cross. And certainly these, this chapter, you've seen that. Uh, but I think that, yeah, there is some similarity, right? Moses comes down from that. The clarity of the law confronted with the unclarity of sin and unfaithfulness, I think, has taken place there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I, all I was going to say is like it— Jesus's tone is very frustrated in that response, right? But then at the end, I don't feel like, because sometimes we see that frustration make its way to the disciples, right? Like just in the boat story from chapter eight, where were you not there when I fed all these? What was wrong with you guys? But this one, they ask him a question instead of coming back with a quip of some sort of, you know, their unbelief or struggle. He, he simply answers that this is one that comes out only through prayer, uh, which I thought was just unique. Like Jesus wasn't must have not been necessarily calling them uh, unbelieving generation, but was talking to those who were around. Uh, but I just found that intriguing. So Shelly, what, what do you, what do you, uh, what do you got? You know, I don't know that I have anything to add to be sincere. I um, am a little fascinated at how the boy looked at the end. And um, that he looked dead. And yet Jesus could reach down, grab his hand and say a prayer and he's alive. That's great. Now we are in verse 30. This is the second of what's going to be three different, which that is a significant number. Three is a significant number. The, the second of three different predictions of Jesus's death, right? Uh, so Jesus And I'll just read this. So then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise three days later, but they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him just a little affirmation for those of you who still feel lost from time to time. Uh, And then just to continue the disciples dullness, they came to Capernaum, right? Jesus's hometown, 
uh, or not hometown, I guess, but home base uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee. When he was in the house, he asked them, what, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anybody wants to be the first, he must be the last and the servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them and taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, uh, does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So let's stop there for just a second. So Jesus predicts his death again. Uh, the disciples don't get it. Um, and then from there, he follows up with a conversation with them, probably perceiving what they actually were arguing about. And so it was maybe a rhetorical question, trying to see if they would fess up to the fact that they were still seeking power and greatness. And as I read a part of this and, and looking toward or looking backward toward Peter's affirmation of Jesus, the Messiah, it does make me at least think when Jesus, when Peter thought Jesus was the Messiah, like what image of the Messiah? Because I've always celebrated and, and, and it wasn't in this one. Uh, Travis and I were talking about this morning. It's not in this reference where Jesus says to Peter, well done, because this wasn't revealed to you from man, but by my father. This one where Mark says it, it's just, yeah, you're the Messiah. And so there's part of me that wonders if even in Peter's affirmation, was he really certain about what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah? Uh, because the way this follows up with these battles about the greatness of Jesus or about the, the greatness of the disciples, there's most definitely part of it where it may, makes me think that because we see this actually a few different times here in the next chapter as well. But we see that they're jockeying for positions of power, which would make sense if the frame of reference was some sort of like authoritarian messiah that, you know, ruled the world or was going to inaugurate the kingdom of God in a way that they were hoping would be tangible, you know, like in their way. Uh, so does that make sense? Like that's kind of the leap I make is I'm just like, it, it makes me kind of frame the whole thing where they're still, and, and we do definitely see this, but they still have this image of Jesus being a Messiah in, in the way that Jesus is not the Messiah that they were looking for. So, um, but what else? Any, anything else that I missed from that or anything else that you kind of found of importance or relevance from these two passages? I mean, I think that I would maybe echo the same thing, Jay. Like this is another kind of situation where he's Jesus is pointing out like the upside down kingdom kind of thing that we have talked about before that the way that they probably expected it to happen, the Messiah to be that, you know, the coming of God's kingdom, like it's not that way. Um, it's more like a child. Uh, and I was, I think I meant to say this earlier when we were talking about the leaven and the bread and all that stuff, like leaven, one of the things that I drew from that was like, um, yeast and those rising agents were things that like people knew how to use. It was a tool that we had, um, that they, or they had or whatever, and they probably understood to a degree, um, but Jesus doesn't use any yeast to turn five loaves into feeding thousands. Like that's great. And so that kind of just the, what you think it's going to be may not be. And so, I mean, for me, and it's kind of a really open ended, impossible to actually like come to a conclusion, but just something that I always want to try to ask myself, like, am I leaning too much on like my understanding of the way things should be my culture's understanding of the way things should be and not enough on trusting God um, 
and leaning on the Holy Spirit and and his leading um, in the way that he's going to interact in the world and, and redeem the world. I mean, that's the idea of repentance. Metanoia is changing the way you see things, changing the way you imagine reality, <clears throat> so much so that it actually changes your life. And the disciples have a way of seeing things, and Jesus is challenging them to change the way they see things, right? The kingdom of God is not, it's, it is that upside-down kingdom. The things that don't have value have value. You know, in our culture, we idolize children. In the American culture right now, we make children the center of everything. And that's kind of our framework. In the first century culture, children were pains in the rear. They were blessings because they were going to carry on your name and hopefully they'd grow into adults. But until then, they were really nobodies. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 guys, you got to become like this. It'd been like, I mean, that would have been, that would have been upside down. Wait a second. You want me to be like a child? What they didn't understand is they were already ignorant like children were, right? Like they didn't actually see the reality of what it was, but, uh, Jesus is trying to tell them that this is a different way. You're going to follow me. You're going to suffer. And if you're going to be great, you become nothing. Um, you know, Philippians says that Jesus came. He let go of the, the being like God. He didn't hold tightly to that and made himself nothing, taking the form of even a slave and even being crucified on the cross. And Paul prefaces that by saying, have the same attitude in you that Christ had in himself. It's an incredible thing that this, this king is not like the kings of the world. This kingdom is not like the kingdom of the world. And... Uh, He's, he's, he's speaking plainly and they still don't get it yet. Yeah. And I don't either, to be honest, I don't get it either. Yeah. I was going to say, I've heard it my whole life and I don't get it. So I can only imagine how much they had to pause and think he's saying what? Cause it was so, so completely opposite to how they had grown up. So Jesus concludes chapter nine, uh, with a few just kind of important reminders. And one of them gets, there's not a, there's not. So in the gospel of Matthew, obviously chapter five through seven is the sermon on the Mount. The gospel of Luke has the sermon on the plain, but you'll, you can catch some of the teachings of Jesus here in chapter nine that are also in the sermon on the Mount and the sermon on the plain. And so we'll probably go into them a little bit more when we get into the sermon on the Mount, uh, whenever we get into Matthew, which is actually not as far away as it may feel. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of go over a few of these things because it is important because we don't want to skip over everything. So John said to him, verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Uh, moving on here in verse 42. I, it, it, before I move on too quickly, anything from that? Whoever's not before us. You know, who's ever not against us? Okay. I didn't say any words fully in that last little sentence. Uh, all right. So verse 42, uh, but whoever causes, so this is one of those teaching moments, right? Whoever causes one of these little ones. So Jesus is still like, think of it still kind of within the scene of this child on his lap. Jesus receives him, said that you need to receive him. You need to be like them. Uh, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone 
hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have your two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. That is a condensed amount of teaching. So we should probably just ignore it. Um, yeah. It's too, it's too complicated. complicated. What, do, how do you handle? And I, like I said, we're going to talk in more depth about this when we get into the sermon on the Mount. Um, because I, I, you probably, if you've heard this before, if you read the sermon on the Mount, some of that, the cut off your hand, gouge out your eye stuff is language that you probably at first initially recognized from the gospel of Matthew. So, um, how do you, what do you do with something like this? Jimmy, I'm going to start with you because I don't want to put this pressure on everybody else in this chat. So, um, I'm blind in my left eye. And, uh, so part of this applies to me. I just, I had to blind myself in my left eye. That's what happened? No, that's not what happened. That was actually an accident. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think Jesus is talking about hyperbole here. I don't think that he's literally, hopefully, hopefully he's not talking about really gouging out eyes and cutting off hands and feet. Um, otherwise a lot of us should be without hands and feet and eyes. <clears throat> I think he's just talking about using hyperbole to talk about the seriousness of sin, right? Like if something's going to trip you up, man, it's, it's better not to have that. It's better to, to figure out what that thing is and get it out of your life than to uh, enter into the suffering of uh, where sin leads to. What about you, Trav? How many hands and eyes would you lose by now? Can you just confess that in front of everybody? I mean, I'd just be laying in bed by now, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Eyeless and handless <laughs> and footless. The easiest thing for us to do is to start cutting off other people's hands and feet and gouging out eyes. I mean, that's, it's somebody else's sin. Let me tell you how you should cut your hand off, Jay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's your fault. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was just relating it to a less religious thing, but just like in a practical sense in my own life, like learning about procrastination and productivity and things that are triggers for me to like want to avoid a project because it's stressful or confusing or overwhelming or whatever, like learning those triggers. And instead of deciding that I can grip my teeth and just push past the trigger, like you, you just have to eliminate it. And like, maybe it's something that you enjoy, like, you know, Facebook, social media or whatever, like those are fun, entertaining things. There are ways to connect, but like ultimately you have to draw a line somewhere and, like, I think that's, that's the kind of thing that I think Jesus is saying. And obviously with, with sin and entering the kingdom of God, it's the stakes are a lot higher. Um, but it's the same concept in my mind. Like whenever you realize that there's something that is a trigger for you, like why would we try to think that we can just keep avoiding the trigger, but keeping it in our lives. And so it's, it's also just a really simple concept. Like, something causes you to sin get rid of it like don't try to not let it cause you to sin while it is still there 
That's a really weird way to say that, but <laughs> no, I think that you're right. I think that there is this part of us. It's like, well, we can, it's, it's the moderation abstinence conversation. Right. And I think that there are spaces where that's the appropriate take, but there are certain things in our life that it's like, we are incapable of handling moderation. Right. And so the better response is not to try to kind of continue to like, well, maybe this time I'll be able to handle a little bit, well, maybe this time, but instead just to say, remove it, just get rid of it. And I think in my own journey, there's been a lot of things that's like morally neutral, even that that have become stumbling blocks in my own life. And so uh, and I've taken these as really this whatever it takes to kind of move forward and out of sinfulness, because we do take sin seriously. Um, And so that's an important thing. And then Jesus ends it with just a conversation about salt uh, and salt saltiness and in how to season it. And then he throws this last little one and be at peace with one another. Um, not probably a ton more to add to that. I mean, obviously, we could talk about salt. But once again, this is another one we'll probably spend more time on later. So as we conclude chapter nine here, um, what do you all what do you think are some because one of the things we've been trying to do along the way is like, all right, so what are the themes that we're catching? What are some uh, significant regular occurring realities from the gospel of Mark. And so what are you all seeing in this? No, I would just say that one of them that has jumped out at me, that started to kind of formulating before this conversation. But when you all pointed out that we are at the halfway point in the book of Mark and that transfiguration scene kind of initiates that it, it is a pivot because the theme starts to shift to that idea of suffering. And I think we can watch for that as we read through the rest of Mark. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, Shelly, you sort of simultaneously asked and answered my thoughts, uh, pointing out that like this pivot point in the middle um, that we just went through. And um, one of the things that I have mentioned, like trying to be more aware of as I read through all of this, because it's not my natural thing, but thinking of like the literary design, so to speak, and um, what significance in the structure and the way that he has organized these stories and these passages. And um, I think, so you you helped me also realize like being a pivot point and the shift to suffering and all of that. And like Jimmy was saying, um, that's what I'm going to try to pay attention to, like understanding this shift that we just walked through and um, how that might affect the rest of of this text. I think the thing that stands out to me in that passage that we just read is like, uh, I could cut my hands and feet off and gouge out all my eyes. But the problem is Jesus says earlier to the, to the leaders of the people, uh, the uncleanness comes out of the heart, right? The things that are sin come out of the heart and I could cut all off everything, but it's really what I need is a new heart. And uh, that's a hard thing. That's a spiritual change that God, you know, my prayer needs to be create a clean heart in me. Oh Lord. Wow, and uh, and the hard part is I don't want to let go of some things, right? Uh, I have to abandon myself to Jesus and take up my cross, and that's not a natural thing. And it's I think, Shelly, you're right. Like we're somebody has described Mark as a passion narrative with a long introduction. That the core of this is that Jesus is going to suffer for the world. That He is the one who comes and suffers for the world and enters into the world suffering. And um, I don't want to deny myself, um, and I, I'm, I need a new heart. And Jesus has come to show us what a, a different life looks like and a different heart looks like. And 
I don't think it's all misery because it says in the scripture later that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the shamefulness of the cross, the pain of the cross. There's a joy on the other side of that abandonment that Jesus understood that he wants to give us that heart that understands that too, I think. Uh, And Mark is kind of the introduction of that process for all of us. It's introducing us to Jesus. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your input, for your thoughts, for your time. And that concludes chapter nine. We'll be back next week and we'll try to be back in our regular routine with chapter 10. But until then, we just encourage you to join us in this journey through the Gospels. And so we are in chapter 10, starting on Sunday, uh, if you're reading this with us, which is the 20th. But if not, you can always join in at any point. And the way you can do that is through read-scripture.com. Jimmy, Travis, Shelley, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will see you next time.